0: Welcome to Episode 7 of Season 2 of the Healthcare Reimagined Podcast. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Pate, who received his MD from Louisiana State University, after which he completed a two-year psychiatry fellowship at Harvard. After spending 12 years as the Chief Medical Officer and Northeast Vice President of Medical Affairs for Beacon Health, Dr. Pate returned to the provider side. He currently serves as the Chief of Psychiatry at LifeBridge, and I am very excited for today's conversation, which I think you will really enjoy. Dr. Pate, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Corey. I'm glad to be here. So I understand that you began a role that had not existed before at LifeBridge in January of 2020, which is certainly a hell of a time to have gotten onboarded. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit about your directive within that role?
1: Yeah, LifeBridge is a system of five hospitals, primarily centered historically in Baltimore with our flagship hospital being Sinai. And then we have four other hospitals in the sort of greater Baltimore region The system had decided to try to develop more of a system-wide approach to the management and sort of creation of services rather than the individual hospital-based approach, which had historically been done. I was the first person tasked with attempting to do that more broadly on the psychiatry, which is a division, which is actually one of the largest, if not the largest, division in number of beds in the LifeBridge system. So I'm a little bit of an experiment, and we were attempting to get that started, just uh, as you note, a month or two before COVID uh, hit. So unfortunately, you know, much of the initial sort of, of movement and ideas that uh, we had were somewhat derailed, but I think we're sort of getting there and creating a more system-wide approach to quality mental health services.
0: You now, before we get into that, you know, Maryland operates under a unique payment system, and I think it would be helpful for listeners who may be from other places, if you could just call out what makes it special and what that means more specifically for behavioral health?
1: We have what's called this global budgeting process, or I think the official name may be the total cost of care model, which was begun about seven or so years ago in an agreement with the federal government and CMS that we at Maryland would use our hospital rate setting commission. And we're the last state to have a hospital rate setting commission still in place, which means that the hospital rate setting commission sets hospital-based rates across the state for uh, consistency on a yearly basis to sort of cost control. So within that system of hospital rate setting, there would be a creation of the hospital systems and hospitals themselves into this global budgeting process where they would be assigned a global budget which would encapsulate all of their services, non-physician services It also excludes mental health services, and that that global budget would need to be adhered to by the hospital year to year with a very small sort of fluctuation in under or over budget to maintain their budget for the following year. So each year, the hospital's budget is reassessed by the commission, and it is reset based on what their previous year's revenue and quality measure attainment was. So they also measure a series of quality measures that were determined, such as readmission rate is sort of one of the broadly measured ones. Mm -hmm. They're also looking at referral of other services. They're looking at um, infection rates, hospital-acquired infections, things like that. So right now, it excludes mental health. It excludes psychiatric hospitals. It excludes freestanding ambulatory surgery centers, outpatient practices. Such like that. It has resulted in pretty reasonable cost containment in general. And I think the move is to kind of expand the global budgeting to include more and more services as the project is shown to be successful.
0: So, if I'm understanding you correctly, it encompasses all non behavioral health care that that hospital is administering to patients? Correct. Does that mean that those prices are the same across all payers? When the rate setting is
1: done for hospital based services, all payers are expected to be included in that, including Medicare. We sort of Maryland received a special waiver to negotiate the Medicare rates as well. So to maintain a consistent approach with cost, then all payers should be paying the same thing. As long as it's a hospital-based service, you know, it gets a little confusing because now that we have all these non-hospital-based services and day surgery centers, there's a million ways to work around this. Obviously, urgent care centers aren't included in it, so there's a lot of places to work around, but the most expensive care obviously happens in the medical hospital setting, and the goal is to manage cost and improve quality in those most expensive settings.
0: I'm sure we could talk about that for another hour, but I want to keep it to behavioral health. You had mentioned last time we spoke that Maryland Medicaid changed its ruling on telehealth as a result of the pandemic. Can you speak a little bit more about that?
1: So prior to the pandemic, Maryland Medicaid had been traditional in its approach to telehealth and that it was very narrow in its definition of who could receive or deliver telehealth sort of following the more traditional narrow definition of CMS, which is you had to be in certain locations. The provider had to be in certain locations. That the receiving and the delivering location were had to be licensed specifically for telehealth. So it made it quite restrictive and really limited to almost no one being able to access it in the state. Even our very rural parts of the state, you know, Maryland has a very rural Western population and a pretty rural Eastern population with most of the folks living right in the middle of the state. When the pandemic hit, Medicaid relaxed based on the CMS guidance and with many of these regulations were relaxed. Medicaid allowed us to start delivering telehealth through platforms that were compliant with the basic privacy rules and also allowing us to bill for services regardless of how it was delivered. So we didn't have to have special specifiers or special designations. We could just do the service through telephonically or telehealth, and then bill it as though it were delivered in person. So it has really been a savior to so many of our patients who were not able to travel, were not able to move, and maintain services to some of our very uh, complex and uh, persistently ill individuals in the community.
0: Do you think this was a an overdue change? I mean, is there a great amount of evidence that suggests that telehealth provides a similar or equal value to these in-person sessions?
1: Overdue, I think it is an understatement, Corey. We know back, (laughs) we know back until the 1960s, right? The first telehealth studies were done on psychiatric care in the 1960s through these very clunky telephone and television models. So throughout that time, there has always been a rich telehealth. For example, you know, I personally probably first did telehealth 20, 25 years ago almost. And what we have seen, and it has been studied actually quite thoroughly, that there has no difference in the mode of treatment delivery when it comes to psychiatry. So in-person telehealth therapy, in-person telehealth psychopharmacology evaluations, there is no statistical difference between those two. So One of the great solutions, I believe, to the expansion to access to quality mental health is really using the technology that we all carry in our pockets on a daily basis. So without telehealth, we still limit ourselves to who we can treat and who we can access, but it's overwhelming that it needs to be in place, fortunately. The Department of Health did introduce legislation in the Maryland legislature, which is in session now, to make this a permanent change, something they actually did in Massachusetts a couple of years ago, which was, I think, Massachusetts was one of the first states, even though it was only a couple of years ago, to move to globalize access to telehealth through the state Medicaid population regardless of how the service was delivered, the billing was going to be the same. And so that was a smart pre-pandemic move on their part. And so hopefully other states and hopefully CMS will move that way to really federally allow this to happen because there still are some of those CMS restrictions that we have to work around.
0: And as we talk about this intersection between reimbursement and clinical efficacy, there were two facts that you shared with me in our last conversation that really shook me. The first was that there is a two to four X higher cost associated with a comorbid psychological diagnosis. And that's not even talking about an acute diagnosis. Right. And the second was that in real dollars, we're spending half of what we spent 30 years ago on behavioral health services. How can someone make sense of these two things, right? We know that patients with behavioral health issues are more expensive. And it seems like if payers do one thing, well, it's to avoid paying for things. So who is footing the bill for these patients that explains why these two things coexist today?
1: There is a lot of cost-shifting to in healthcare, right? And our patients who struggle with behavioral health uh, diagnoses are some of the biggest recipients of the cost-shifting process that occurs. So as you said, we know, again, through the health services literature, this is going back decades, not something that is new or anyone should be surprised by. The comorbid presence of a psychiatric diagnosis in a hospitalized patient with diabetes, hypertension, or whatever reason they're being medically hospitalized as you said, between two and four times more expensive to care for per episode of care than the patient who does not have a comorbid psychiatric illness. So there's a lot of reasons to understand how that is and the fact that it's just more expensive, it takes longer, other services are needed, other barriers that occur because of the psychiatric diagnosis. But the fact that we end up paying the majority of the money in our healthcare system for medical care. Of psychiatric patients, not psychiatric care of mm-hmm. psychiatric patients, really should motivate us to move and understand why it is that we are spending so much less, as you said, on psychiatric patients for their actual psychiatric treatment, which has gone down since the advent of sort of more restrictive managed care in the late 80s to a factor of about half in real dollars. What it really reflects, Corey, is that we have two healthcare systems that are separate and unequal. We have a medical system which is much more open and permissive in the way it's allowed to bill and admit and treat patients without sort of restriction. And then we have a mental health system, which is incredibly restrictive in accessing access to quality and access to services and in parity for payment and billings for institutions and providers. So when patients really need help, they end up many times lingering more on the medical side than they do on the psychiatric side and that's where the dollars are going.
0: All good stories have a, a hero and a villain. So who is the villain in this story? Like, Who is to blame for this present situation? I think the profession
1: as a whole bent decades, probably from the advent of the Freudian theories up through the 1980s, refusing to participate in sort of a more, quote, medicalized approach to treatment. So by and large, as a profession. We wanted to demedicalize ourselves. We wanted to remove ourselves from requirements for outcomes. We wanted to remove ourselves from measurement-based care. And so that laid the groundwork, in my opinion, for someone to come in and say, hey, look at all this money that's being spent on these individuals, and no one is really holding them to account to how our patients do, how what services are being delivered, what's available. So that allowed the creation of this managed care model, you know, with some other legislative changes in the 70s, which basically began to protect insurance companies from their decisions that ERISA legislation is called. That then allows this other sort of entity to move in, which really then became the ultimate villain, In that it began to maneuver itself in a way that we were going to squeeze patients out of treatment. We were going to limit access We were going to raise costs both to the individual and to the provider and to the institutional provider to deliver care. And then we were going to create this kind of circular reasoning process, you know, on the managed care side to sort of uh, say that, oh, this is how we know whether or not you're providing quality care by the measurements that we require you to deliver. For example, we will force someone out of the hospital when clinically (laughs) We are hearing from the providers that they're not ready to be discharged, but then we're going to be penalizing you if they readmit. Right. And we're going to penalize you by not offering a continuum of services outside of the hospital. But then we're going to hold you accountable if they don't have access to a continuum of hospitals outside of hospital services and if they have to come back into the hospital. It really has become tangled, I think, at this point into a process that is non-functional, non-supportive for most of our patients who are in need.
0: So let's say that I actually managed to get you an audience with Joe Biden and the individual leading his healthcare team, and you're about to zoom in and you're going to get one minute to talk about the changes in behavioral health that would put us back on the right track. What message would you have for the president, by the way, directly stolen from Zeev Neuwirth's creating a new healthcare, because I love this question that he asks. What advice would you give about how we could begin to get back on the right track when it comes to treating behavioral health conditions?
1: Well, I think we have to reintegrate behavioral health and medical health services into one insurance bucket. I think we have to federally legislate parity regarding coverage of services. I think we have to federally legislate these so-called medical necessity criteria, which are laughable and managed care created, have nothing to do with quality or the delivery of services. Lastly, we have to federally legislate the types of organizations that are able to manage the health care of our citizens. I would say, and I know this may sound radical, that we should not allow for-profit insurance companies to be in the managed care business those are four things that I would try to get the president to do. Now, the state legislatures are addressing some of these things. Some states require that to manage their state insurance plans or Medicaid plans, it it has to be a nonprofit entity. Massachusetts, again, a few years ago, required that substance use services not be able to be reviewed for the first couple of weeks after admission. And guess what? People started doing better, not worse. So surprise, surprise, Better quality treatment for a little bit longer actually allowed people to have better outcomes. And so now it affects the managed care bottom line, but that's where we have to separate ourselves out. We really have to hold ourselves accountable to ensuring that if there is oversight, it is driven by evidence, it is driven by outcomes, it is driven by measurement, not being driven by profit, which is all it's being driven by now.
0: You when know, we talk about in the hospital world, profit versus nonprofit, it, it, it's kind of a uh, an interesting situation, right? Where the nonprofit basically has to provide some amount of community care that's not really measured. And so what we find in practice is that the nonprofits act like for profits. And do you find that to be different in the payer world? I do think it's different in the payer world. I agree absolutely
1: with you in the real world. Not for profit is just a tax designation, it is not a social mission. It is not a, it's not a requirement that we do good. It's the way our taxes are paid. And I think on the insurance side, when I think about, when I call it sort of lump it into the sort of the broad for-profit category, I'm thinking of the shareholder profit-driven approach to business, which can certainly make many businesses very successful. And I think I've said to you before, I have no problem with anyone being successful making profit. However, when it comes to taking that profit and it directly opposing the best interest of those that you are telling the world you were caring for, that you are taking on a population of Medicaid, for example, and you're a big anthem or a big United. And you're saying you're telling the state government and the legislature, we're going to manage these. We're going to make sure these folks get good quality care. But what you're actually doing is squeezing every dime out of it, that dollar that you're taking from the patient that's going to the shareholder is harming the patient's care and harming their access to care. And so I think we have to think about it that the $5 billion that an Anthem or a United brings in quarterly in profit after all of their expenses, after all of their healthcare bills have been paid, after all of their requirements are, I mean, we're looking at tens of billions of dollars a year in pure profit being drawn out of the pockets of the patients who have the greatest need, because most of those companies are also managing most of our Medicaid and Medicare plans across the country. So I think that there is that designation. I think when you look at the nonprofit, a smaller, more focused third party payers and managed care organizations, they are driven uh, just a little bit more by mission rather than by a motive for profit, and so obviously they're making money to reinvest and do other things. But that shareholder sort of pure business approach, I think, is actually quite damaging to healthcare, and particularly to behavioral healthcare.
0: A few minutes ago, you spoke about a resistance to measurement-based, outcome-based metrics, and that being part of the reason that the industry has moved in the direction that it has. I was reading an article about a company called Groups Recover Together, which has been all in on value-based care since they were founded in 2014. And what I read was that 70% of their members are still in treatment at month six versus around 25% in traditional MAT models. And they get abstinence rates as high as 90% across patient populations, as opposed to 20% in traditional, Matt, and and I should note that they are you know basically all value-based. And so it does appear that properly incentivizing patient-centric care can yield positive outcomes. So how do you see value-based care progressing in this behavioral health space? And what, if anything, gives you hope? I think that the value-based care, it really connects to the first sort of discussion
1: piece you and I engaged in in this talk, which was around the global budgeting piece, right? And I think there, I actually see them sort of philosophically connected that if we can provide folks with sort of a quasi-global budget, however we want to sort of think about it, and reward them for actually managing their patient population, reward them for their outcomes, just like value-based care does, then I think we're on the right track. I think that rewarding institutions and organizations, as long as they are again with the caveat that they are paid well enough to actually care for the patients and there is a continuum of care established and for these folks to move on to uh, then i think that is actually one of the solutions to our healthcare crisis i think the more we can globally budget healthcare and the more we can include all services and move to that frightening political term of national health care, uh, then the more we have the opportunity to really achieve high-quality standards across medical care, but especially across behavioral health care. We're in a unique position, I think, as a country, to do that with the wealth, with the amount of money we already spend on health care twice as much per capita as the nearest country with, and we fall maybe in the middle on quality and outcomes on a good day for health care. And so I feel like that's the goal. And that's actually what I'm optimistic about. If we can ever get to that point, I guess we have to hope that our political system will allow us to get to that point or some states maybe can sort of begin to model that. But the solution is out there, whether or not we're going to obtain it before the whole system collapses, which I think we sort of have some fear of based on the escalating costs nationally, you know, are we, are we going to bear the weight of, are we going to be able to afford healthcare going into the future without drastic changes or dramatic?
0: As a clinical leader, there's a question I want to ask you that strays a little bit from the topic of behavioral health through the early eighties or nineties, I should say, health systems were run by doctors and nuns. And some will say that when you're managing a massive organization, business prowess matters more than clinical expertise. But as you and I discussed, there is something to be said for clinical leaders leading clinical organizations. So my question to you is: What caused this change? Was it good for healthcare? And do you ever see things changing back?
1: When you look at the sort of trajectory of leadership in healthcare systems, there was you know pretty significant change over the last thirty years of moving away from clinical leaders. Or as you sit nuns, because we have such strong historical Catholic health systems in this country based on their social mission. So we moved from a time educationally, it's also really actually interestingly kind of related, I believe, to our educational system, right? We moved from a time where MBAs were more difficult to get degrees regarding access. Only certain, not everyone had MBA, certain programs, certain high elite, quote, the universities offered them and and not a lot of other folks to a place where they sort of exploded. And there was this sort of leadership expansion, this sort of structured leadership expansion from an educational standpoint. And then a lot of that uh, leadership structure and, and education was focused around healthcare, care, because, again, I think people sort of saw it as a market opportunity. Like, oh, look at these multibillion dollar institutions and they're not being led by business people. Clearly, you need business acumen and you need what we would call in health and psychiatry, a multidisciplinary team to be successful at anything. We all have to have a range of ideas, a range of experiences In our lives to bring to bear something that will make an institution successful. But I think the lack of clinical leadership, which we have, it's now quite rare to see a a clinical leader, nurse or doctor in charge of a hospital or healthcare system, and even fewer nuns, obviously, because even in this Catholic systems, primarily pure uh, business, folks who are purely trained in the business models are in charge now. And I, I do think that's been damaging. I think that we have removed folks who are not intimately and, and adherent in some way to the clinical social mission of healthcare, of providing that sort of primary Hippocratic requirement that we do everything for every patient, then I think we forget sometimes why we're doing what we're doing and we lapse into just looking at the dollars and cents. And I think that we could do better by people and by healthcare systems if we had more clinical leaders, both who have connections within their system to those who have more business acumen if, if that's needed. But I think we have harmed the system by pulling away from a healthcare driven model of healthcare delivery.
0: It's definitely food for thought, and we've discussed a lot of interesting topics today. You've certainly given me a lot to think about, and I'm sure for our listeners as well. So thank you, Dr. Pate, for taking time out of your busy schedule. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope we will get to speak again soon.
1: Thanks, Corey. It's uh, been great to talk to you.